You're listening to another hope-filled podcast from Life. For more information about our church, visit lifenz.org. We're in the series called An Elephant of a Ro- in the Room, but before we go there, I thought it'd be good. A few people have said, how did we go with legacy? Anybody wanting to know where we're at with legacy? Well, not much response in the city, so we might just move on from there. But if you're new to life, you may not be aware. Every year we have a legacy offering. And uh, we have this dream that we believe God's given us. That by the end of 2020, we're able to have $20 million worth of community impact happening every year. It's like people that are crying out, is there an answer for me? It's like, no, hey, there's this place called life. I think you can find an answer there. And we want to be a part of the ability of being God's hands and heart together. Not just believing to pray for people, but be there in their time of need. And so to do that, we're believing we can raise 45 million, get this, it's crazy, in three and a half years to pay off all our Auckland campuses so that we can be in this place where we can activate that to be a reality. And uh, in line of that, we're believing that we're gonna see at least 3,000 legacy partners. People that are gonna be committed to do what they can do. You can't do what the next person does, but you can do something. And I think sometimes the enemy robs us. It's like, we we ain't got a much. You can do a little bit. A lot of little bits make much. And on the other side of our investment is the wonder that God can reach more and more people. So this is where we're at this year. We so far have legacy partners for the next 12 months of 1,879, which is pretty amazing. We are believing for 3,000 legacy partners and maybe you haven't committed yet and you're saying hey are we still going to do that maybe you were committed last year and you're just going to keep on doing what you were doing still a good idea in the seat in front of you just have a look there there is a envelope we'd love you to take that if you're not part of the legacy family and uh and just be praying about what you're going to do and even if you're going to continue on last year fill it in for this year so that we can believe we can get to three thousand uh again what has been committed this year over and above those that have committed for the whole three and a half years, this year has come in new commitments over the next 12 months of just over 5 million, 5 million, 94,291. Yeah, that's worth some praise there. And you might go, but 45 million is a lot. Yep. Well, overall, those Gideons that have committed for the three and a half years, obviously they're doing it over three and a half years. And then we've got what has been raised and then also what has been committed for the next 12 months, we are then up to a total amount of commitments of 30 million, uh, 641, dollars which has never been seen in our nation before. And it's kind of, it's not about the money, it's about the people that are gonna be able to be helped on the other side of it. Of that 30 million, let's keep that up there. So far we've had come in 16 million six hundred and thirty nine thousand four hundred and sixty eight so we've still got 14 million of that 30 million committed to come in uh, and also last year there were many that gave for the 12 months or committed for the 12 months that 30 million still has about eight hundred thousand dollars worth of people that had committed that hasn't come in and I, I don't want anyone to feel condemned or pressured I just want you to go and say hey if that was on my heart to do God I'm not giving up on this I'm going to believe, I'm going to pray. Get other people praying with you and just say, God, we're going to see that miracle unfold. And we are underway. Anybody still believing we can reach the God goal of 45 million and see that happen, which is pretty amazing. In fact, why don't we stand together? Every campus, let's stand together. I think 
We should thank God for it. And then we're going to introduce Pastor Robert and Pastor Amanda Ferguson, who are here from the Hillsong Church. And they're going to be a part of today's service with me. Father, we thank you today that you're a gracious, you're a good God. You've always demonstrated that if we put something in your hand, you can multiply it. And that you can create a harvest from every seed. And so God, we just thank you for entrusting us with the vision that we carry on behalf of you. Pray for those next to us. You bless them abundantly today. Bless Pastor Robert and Amanda as they come to share in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come on, let's put our hands together. Welcome Pastors Robert and Amanda. Make them feel really warm south, up at north, and here at Central. Welcome to life in Auckland. We love you so much. Amen. You may be seated. So great to have you guys here. And uh, we had a great first service. And today we're going to be connecting all the way through. And if you are visiting at Life, you may, be, may not be aware that we've got an elephant in the room. Something hiding in the room. What that literally means is often you're in an environment where there are certain questions or things that need to be talked about, but nobody wants to do it because it's uncomfortable. Well, here at Life, we are committed to going there. And so if you weren't in church last week, we spent last week talking about identity and how that the Bible says something very different to what society says. The Bible teaches us that God created us with a design. And our thought was, if there is a designer, then there is a design. And God wants us to realize that we're bigger than the things we feel. We are created with a sense of purpose that can only be discovered the moment we encounter divine intimacy. That when we find God for ourselves, not religion, we discover that there's a father and the enemy is committed to relabel and remove us. Whereas God calls us his children. And so I'd encourage you, today we want to take the second step and we've asked Pastor Robert and Amanda, they've been a part of our journey here at Life since the beginning. In fact, Pastor Robert was on our eldership in the early years. Yeah, it's wonderful to be back. Thank you very much for the uh, opportunity and privilege and uh, great to see so many of you that I know and what an amazing building. It's the first time I've spoken in this building, so very exciting. You know, let, let me go to you. So today we're talking about why God. I think it would be true that those that love God and have walked the Christian walk for a while still have a whole lot of questions as to God. If you are God and you're that big and you're that able, why? Why do I go through things like I've gone through? Why doesn't, don't we see all the times the things that we would say are promised in Scripture become our reality? There are a lot of questions. Why don't you set a bit of a, a foundation for today? Okay, well, Paul is going to ask us lots of really, really difficult questions, and I'm going to pass them to my lovely wife, Amanda. But he's, he's asked me just to lay a platform, and it may be not quite the platform that you're expecting. Many, many years ago, I was sitting on the front row, like some of you, and there was a worship leader who was expecting a child. And that child had been already diagnosed as being an encephalic. In other words, the baby had no brain. Now, we were believing for an amazing miracle, and we've seen extraordinary miracles. But that day, God showed me something else. He gave me a vision, and he showed me that I was going to actually do the funeral 
of the baby. And I said at the funeral that this baby has no brain but does have a spirit. Well, exactly what took place, what I saw in the vision took place. And tragically, the baby died and they asked me to do the funeral. And that poses huge questions. Why did the baby die? Why did God show me that I was going to be at the funeral? And many of us have those questions that seemingly are unanswered. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 11 to 13 says something that we know very well, and it deals with what I call the theology of ignorance. It says that we now see through a glass darkly, but then in eternity we will know even as we are fully known. So in that passage it says, there are things I know and there are things I don't know. The things I don't know establish a mystery that is essential. There are things that we will never know. But the things that I do know establish a trust. I know that God knows me. In Job chapter 23, Job is going through a terrible time. And he says, I don't know where you are, God, but I know you know where I am. In that same passage in Corinthians, it says, in the past, we... Uh, spoke like a child, we thought like a child, and reasoned like a child. And there are our problems. We need to grow up. Stop speaking without knowledge. Stop thinking without humility. Stop reasoning uh, without understanding or without truth. So that passage ends by saying these three remain, faith, hope, and love. So this is the foundation. Love knows that God is good. Love knows that God is good. And faith believes that God is God. Sometimes we're not going to understand him, but then he wouldn't be God. And hope expects God to do good. Those three things are absolutely paramount for understanding the why questions. God is good. God is God. God does good. And that is what I would term the theology of ignorance. And we need to know certain things and concentrate on those things and just trust God with the things that we don't know. So there's a thought. Maybe more than one. I think all of us are challenged, and many people would say, well, if God is really God and he's a God of love and, as we said, a God of ultimate authority, why would we be experiencing in our world poverty? Because you think about those that are starving, that don't deserve to be starving. Why do we experience depths of pain? Why is war taking place? Why is there so much unfairness? Why do we go through those things if God is really God? Amanda, some thoughts? I think the, the, the simple answer, which isn't simple at all, is that we live in a fallen world. Um, but to understand a fallen world, we have to go back and ask another question, which is, why did God allow a fallen world? Some of you thought that. Um, and that brings us to the whole issue of free will. Because 
if we are going to be able to choose or are going to choose good and love and joy, we also have to be able to choose the opposite. Otherwise, it's not a choice. If we were made so that we could only ever choose to be loving and good and do what's right, um, we'd just be robots. We would be, you know, completely without free will. And that's not a world that God considered worth creating. He wanted to create a world where his creatures could freely choose to love him and love one another. But because they could freely choose that, he had to give them the ability to freely choose the alternative which leads so often to poverty and suffering and evil. It's, it's, it's a huge question. Uh, years ago, somebody said to me, well, God can do anything. So 40,000 kids apparently back then die of starvation every day. And it's like, yeah, but the flip side of that is the world is producing seven times enough food to feed every human being. So people would rather put it in the ocean, dump it, because they don't get the money, the greed, than to feed a human life. And yet we project that onto God of, God, that's your fault. And I think there is a big understanding of understanding there was season wherein there is an enemy. Because people would say, well, why did that person have to die? Or even more importantly, why did they have to die such a horrific death? Why did it happen so early? Okay, death comes. But that whole thought of, again, once we made the choice as humanity to sin against God, death entered the world. And often I say, the Bible says, uh, love those, pray for those that persecute you. So you are going to be persecuted. You are going to go through things. Each of the disciples died a horrific death. Stephen died a horrific death. Jesus died a super horrific death. Yet we look back and see how God used that and how God allowed that to happen for our freedom. Uh, anything else you want to add on that, Robert? Yes, just picking up on something that Amanda said. If we go back to the beginning, we see God created two trees, a tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that gives us an understanding of what Amanda was talking about. He wants us to have life, his life, abundant life on earth and eternal life in heaven. He's never changed from that. But he had to give us the choice between good and evil. The truth is, we were the ones that stuffed up, not God. Yet when things go wrong, we blame God. I've got a book at home which looks at people who have failed over the years. And the first chapter is entitled, Adam and Eve, the Original Idiots. And it just is really helpful not to blame God for the things that have gone wrong in the world or to blame the devil, but to look at yourself and say, what can I do to help? The fact is there is enough food in this world for everybody to eat. The reason that they can't is because we as humans are withholding what God has blessed us from them. It's our responsibility, not God's fault. Because that would lead again to another question that's come in. Uh, so is God really in control here on earth? Uh, my view on that would be God is ultimately in control of everything, but we are in a dispensation of time. There's a season where there is an enemy at work that has not yet been completely dealt with. And so therefore there are big things. So with that question was someone else who's saying, so 
a, a child that's born with disability. Why would God allow that? Is, and for me, there's an echo, there's a degeneration of God's intended creation. But, but it's a big question, so I'll put that to one of you two. Is like, so is God actually con- control here on earth? Or I, I think if you led that uh, question to its conclusion, does God micromanage everything? Or wh- how does this all work? I mean, ultimately, of course, he's in control. You know, he created the world by a word. He'll end it with a word, probably. Um, scary thought. But, uh, but that whole idea of micromanaging, um, I always uh, think of the, the movie Bruce Almighty, where the, the character is given God's power to do anything. So he thinks, great, I'm going to answer everybody's prayers with a yes. And he does that, and there's absolute chaos. Because, you know, the yes to sunshine for someone's wedding is, is the no to rain for a farmer. And you suddenly see that actually, no, God has put certain things in place, certain laws of nature. And he doesn't micromanage every single prayer or every single um, situation so that we would be living in an incredibly chaotic and unpredictable world if that were the case. And so, by and large, he allows the laws of nature to take their course and then steps in from time to time with a miraculous reversal of the natural course of things. Just going back to the beginning again, I love to go back to the beginning. Jesus often did. But in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22, the world that God has set up, he said, there's a world of night and day, of light and darkness, of seed time and harvest. This is the way I have set it. In other words, it's a world of contrast, it's a world of choice, it's a world of process. And of course he can step in, but he also expects us to work with the the rules, the laws, the processes. We often expect God to do all the choosing for us. I remember when I wanted to propose to my lovely wife or a 40 or whatever it was years ago, And uh, I said to God, could you show me, is she the one? And he said, well, it's up to you. I'm not marrying her. That's what I, (laughs) you choose. And we we often expect God to sort of step in at every every level. Think of Jesus' ministry. He had a full-time ministry for three and a half years and 35 major recorded miracles. That's only one a month. So what's he doing the rest of the time? He's going through the process, the rules. He's eating, he's feeding, he's sleeping, he's walking. And I think sometimes we're wanting this intervention all the time, but God is actually saying, work with my process. It's great to talk about because all the way through, if God was fully in control and Jesus needed to come to earth to be born why did he need to be born in the manger? Why wasn't the room prepared if God had everything, but God is looking at a far wider angle view? I think we get trapped often in our predicament versus his purpose. That we'll trust God, and the question is, how do you trust God then when some things have happened that you didn't expect or you've lost people unexpectedly or you're carrying something and life didn't turn out the way you thought it would 
Uh, I, I even think with Jesus, we know he had to die to pay for the sin of the world, but did he have to have the crown of thorns? Did he have to be marred so severely you couldn't recognize his humanity? We, we've never seen a movie that's come close to how Jesus looked. But retrospectively, you go, well, he didn't just need to die. He needed to, or he decided that he would, in all points that we go through in humanity, know the pain. And to be there carrying us through, but not always bringing us to our, again, written out result, his purpose, God's purpose. The, the trust issue is a big one. When, when you've suffered personally or in your world, there's been things that have been incredibly hurting. Uh, how do we trust God when he doesn't step in? I, I was reminded of um, a friend of ours, Phil Camden, who used to be a pastor here, I think, and has been diagnosed with motor neuron disease. And he preached a really powerful word a couple of years ago that's never left me. He talked about Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane saying, God, if it's possible, take this cup from me. To which God said, no, basically. But he said, Jesus accepted the no because of the yes behind it. And the yes behind it was the salvation of the world. And Phil said, at this point in my journey, that I've had a no to the immediate healing from motor neuron, although he's believing for it. But he said, I choose the yes behind that because the yes has been the salvation of some of the motor neuron people that I've come to into contact with. And I thought that is trust, absolutely exemplified. And I, and I think uh, the, the Bible gives the record, the story of Job, to give us an understanding of exactly that. Because Job is going through really, really indescribable and inexplicably tough times. And just like all of us, he asks the question, why? Why? Why is this happening? And that, is, in effect, is reasoning like a child. And around about 38 chapters in, God says, let me answer you. And he doesn't give any answers. He gives three chapters of unanswerable questions. And finally, Job says... Okay, I'm going to trust you behind the challenges. Now, God is a restorer and does restore him. But I think sometimes we waste a lot of time asking the wrong questions. C.S. Lewis says we ask uh, what he calls nonsense questions. We ask questions like, what shape is yellow? <laughs> or what color is flat? And God says, I beg your pardon? And then we get cross when he doesn't answer the question. <laughs> Sometimes he's silent because we're not just choosing to trust him. I, I often think that Job thing, God steps in and he says, so Job, after all of the pain, all of the misunderstanding, so where were you when I created the ends of the earth? <laughs> yeah. And that's a challenge because we've become so enamored with our own outcome. And I have often thought, is it worth, and I'm not saying it is or not, but is it worth one person's life here on earth 
if it creates a pathway for someone to know eternity. Because even Paul looked at things differently. He was imprisoned. And if you read behind the lines, he didn't see prison or his prison as something that was going to debilitate him. But it was an opportunity. He was chained eight hours of a day to the guards. But he didn't see himself as chained. He saw them as being chained. That they were chained to someone that could bring life to them. And out of that, he says these words, for me to live is Christ. It's not to get my outcomes, but it's to get his purpose. In fact, to die is gain. I, I still think of funerals. We should feel grief and have to work through grief. And there are tears. But a true Christian funeral is one of, it's out of the season of restriction to a season of no more restriction. The, this deformity no longer will hold the spirit captive in its human form. It's completely free. And we're going to turn things around. I think the enemy uses this. So, well, God, you, it's, it's almost like we say, God, you, it's your fault. And God says, I gave you, God gave mankind a choice. And in the middle of that, we can turn this whole thing around and begin to bring glory to God. And I, I think it's a, it's a big issue. We should talk more about it. So how do, how do we trust God when it doesn't work out the way we wanted it to work out? But God had a bigger purpose for it. That eternity, as you said, will only reveal what was going on behind the scenes. And we can find ourselves in that place where we can literally fight the fight. I mean, if there's no fight, then you don't have to fight. You've got to run the race. It's going to cost something. But we're here and we, we, we see everything. And I think we're guilty as a church. Many of us is about, well, I come to God for what he'll bring to me. No, it's like we come to God for what God wants to use us for that have eternal value. And that's why we will always be a church that says, you know, it's not about money. It's not about, no, it's about reaching people with the love of God in a tangible way. That's what we're about. I mean, when it comes to money, another big question is uh, somebody said, or a number of people said, why is it that sometimes people that don't even have the faith I have or have no faith are blessed? Anybody feel like that? It's like, well, I'm doing the right stuff. And why are they blessed and not me, Amanda? Well, sometimes it's because they're doing the right thing and you aren't. Sometimes they're working a whole lot harder. They're actually, you know, using, um, as Pastor Brian talks about, what's in their hands, you know, uh, effectively. Uh, there's, there's a very good book I'd like to recommend to you called God, Money. Yeah, I've read that. That's God, me. Money and yeah. Me. It's one of Which, those amazing um, books. Which is full of great wisdom. I actually seriously push that to my students um, because, you know, for many of them, they go, why, why am I always in debt? And I say, well, you know, there's some basic things that actually we can put into place. And often the people of the world are, are wiser with their money than we are or wiser with their gifts than we are. And Jesus said that, of course, in Luke chapter 16. He said the reason that that person is blessed is because they are wiser with mammon than, than you are. Sometimes we are just not doing the right thing. And tragically, sometimes Christians are the most stupid. <laughs> I, I, Tell us what you really think. I know. But I remember meeting a group of people, not in this nation, no one that you would know. But they said, God has told us to stop working and uh, start just trusting him for whatever he gives. Now, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. 
So I said, I'm sorry, but that wasn't God. But they've got this idea that God is going to just pour manna from heaven. He expects us to go through the process. And a lot of that is just using his God-given and practical wisdom in putting things in place. You know, it's sort of funny. It was not funny, but a lot of times you have prayer requests for people's financial situation. And I think when people are genuinely looking for a breakthrough, they are yet to realize that prayer is only going to engage God to prepare them for the changes they need to make. I've never found a dollar come from heaven. It's always come from someone. Because if there were no serial numbers on it, it wouldn't have any validity here on earth. So God is always going to use people, and we need to pray that God will bless us, but that prayer is God help us see what we need to see to change what we need to change. And by the way, you can have a great book like this God, Money, and Me book I'm hearing about today. Uh, but if you don't read it and implement it, it doesn't change anything. And some of the challenges in the church is we've been taught to give everything away. That's not what God wants us to do. We've also been taught that if we pray, it'll happen. And as we've just heard, uh, I think the, uh, the children of darkness, the Bible says, are wiser than the children in light. And people say, well, why are, why are they being more blessed? Maybe because they've just validated their gift and worked hard on it, as we heard. And so uh, we can have the wind of God in our finances if we honor him and do it right. But you still have to have faith and works. You still have to be committed to it. And a great scripture in Proverbs, by the way, is Proverbs 6 and verse 6. Just some great housekeeping information. If you're not breaking through financially, go to the ant, you sluggard. <laughs> Consider her ways and be wise. She's got no captain. She's got no one telling her what to do, but she provides her supplies in the summer, gathers those, that food in the harvest, and then it goes on and says, so why do you stay in the same place of just sleeping and thinking it's going to change? Be in a position where you work with the talents and the gifts that you have, do it God's way. And then you can see blessing begin to unfold and really begin to live this divine financial pathway. There is an answer in God's word that we've all had to discover. Rather than just giving everything away, there is a, a pathway. There are principles collectively. It's like the ingredients of a cake. They cause the cake to be fully formed. And it's not just one thing. It's not just tithing. It's, there's more to it. And I'd encourage you, if you're not broke, breaking through financially, you are not a special case. God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you would have in all things, all sufficiency, and have an outflow of an abundance for every good work. And that's, there's no special cases. So we've got to stand back and just say, okay, God, that's something we can fix. Another big question would be for those that say, you know, I've got something from God in my heart. I have feel like God's given me something to do or something to carry, something to believe for. And so uh, it just is not eventuating. How do I have the ability to keep trusting God? I just think we need to understand that if God is God, one of the things that we need to have is faith. The Bible says faith pleases God. And the chapter in which it says that, chapter 11 of Hebrews, lists a whole group of people who believed God throughout their life but did not receive what they believed for. But we have been the recipients of what they believed for. 
In other words, God's time frame is completely not ours. I would rather get to the end of my life in faith than give up halfway. In fact, Jesus said, when I come, will I find faith on the earth? And I gave the example at the gathering yesterday, and I think it's a good example, that in the 19th century, Antoni uh, Gaudi um, uh, started building the cathedral in, in Barcelona. And he spent 40 years of his life building a cathedral. And when he died in the first part of the 20th century, it was only a tiny bit completed. And when God, uh, people criticized him, he said, my client, God, is not in a hurry. And I think we need to understand that God is not in a hurry. Well, they're going to finish the cathedral in around about 2026 on the 100th anniversary of his death. In other words, we are the beneficiaries of his vision and his faith. And he committed throughout his life to believe God. Yeah, I think that's great. And if I can just go slightly sideways pastorally for a moment, there are people, there'll be people in this service who are sick, who are waiting for their healing, waiting for that promise. And what has made it more complicated is that other people have said to them, well-meaning, but have said to them, well, what is it you need to repent of? Or you must have done something wrong. And I just want to bring a balance to that. When, when the man was born blind in John 9, the disciples said to Jesus, so who sinned, the man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. There's something completely different going on here. It's about showing my glory. And I think we have to be very careful not to lay burdens on people who are already struggling with something and struggling to hold on to their faith. Our job is to come alongside and cheer them on and be Jesus' hands and feet to them where we, they need that. Yeah, and... Very good. I like you. And we don't just blame uh, individuals and say, well, it's your fault, but we blame God, we blame circumstances, we blame so many things on what went wrong. Going back to what we said earlier, we live in a fallen world. When, when in Luke chapter 13, a tower fell, the people said, well, I know the reason why that fell. And Jesus said, the tower fell because the tower fell. And then he said, don't, don't worry about why the tower fell or whose fault it is. Look at yourself. Look at your own challenges, your own problems. In other words, look at how you can repent. In, in the first service, Amanda quoted a famous series of letters in the Times newspaper in England many years ago. And they, they were asking the question, what's wrong with the world? And everybody listed all the things that was wrong. And then a famous journalist and a Christian by the name of G.K. Chesterton responded, Dear Sir, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And sometimes, rather than pointing the finger, that's exactly what we need to do. Check out our own life and live before God. It really helps, too, when you realize, as we've been talking, that God created us in the Garden of Eden, humanity. 
for eternity in that state. Our rejection of God meant sin and therefore death entered the world. And if you look at a timeline from the beginning, then you have your human life somewhere in it. We only think about the end of our human life and the rest is a blur. Whereas God said faith will produce, but his timing is eternity. It sometimes eventuates in our human life and many times it does and sometimes it doesn't. But faith, I believe, will be active all the way through heaven because God is faith. So therefore, we've got to stop questioning and doubting when we don't see it on our timeline and realize if it's God-given, all I need to do is live out my days being faithful and completely committed to that and God will work everything together for good. And I think if we can do that, then we're going to, because as you said, if you try to work it all out, you're going to become very confused because that is something you can't work out, how eternity fits into time. Eternity is not restricted by time. And God is a God of eternity. So it's not like God's not to be trusted. He is. Another big question would be, and we've just got a couple more times moving, but it's, uh, I think a real thing is often we come to Christ or we return to Christ and we've got a whole lot of residue. Uh, how long does it take for my brokenness to be dealt with. Now, you're pretty angelic, Amanda, but Robert would have some inside. I, no, let's go to Amanda. <laughs> How long's a piece of string, yeah. Um, look, I think, actually, God knows what we can deal with. It's a bit like if you're trying to heal a body, you know, someone's been injured, you can't fix everything all at once. So he sort of triages and deals with the most important thing, which is our need for a saviour, first of all, when we get saved. And then over time, as we mature, as we're able to um, receive the healing and deeper levels in our life, he does that work. And it, and it will take time. I think we are in such a rush, but as we've been saying all the way through, there's, it, there's an eternity you know, God is not in a hurry. And we need to fundamentally understand that he is a restorer. He is a redeemer. That's his process. But uh, I don't know about you, but every now and again, I look at my face in the mirror and recognize that my body is actually falling to bits. And um, the fact is my body is dying, but God will restore it completely in heaven. But in the meantime, he's going to restore as much as he can in this fallen world. So, yes, I'm going to get a brand new body, but I'm still going to die. God is not going to remove death because of Genesis. But we, we, we're going through this process, this process of healing, this process of redemption, this process of restoration. And it's taken us years to mess up. It may take us a few years to be restored. You know, Paul writes that and he says, be transformed. Yes. I think the moment we find Christ is our spirit comes alive. We're complete in our spirit, but we've got a soul man that's been damaged. Don't, don't forget this. Whatever a person sows, that they will reap. Once you get saved, doesn't mean there's no reaping of what you've sown. There's forgiveness. And so therefore, we've got to undo the patterns of negative thinking. We've got to undo this feeling of inadequacy. We've got to undo it by renewing our mind, by getting the word of God in it. And I think uh, as we 
we kind of bring this to a conclusion this morning, there are huge challenges for all of us uh, when, when we're in a world that's changing so much. We touched on it last week, but a, a number of people wrote in things like this. Is, so when we're dealing with this world, shouldn't we have a priority over, of love over truth? How, how can we say there's a God of love uh, if, if we ever represent truth that feels like it's condemning people? So shouldn't it be a priority of love? And I think I would just encourage everybody that wasn't there last week to go back. And we talked about our identity is something that comes out of the revelation of love and truth connected. Uh, God is God. Uh, Amanda said it in the first service that God is righteous. God is holy. So God loves us all, but His holiness cannot mix with our undealt with sin. So He loves, but it's the sin that He, he wants to, to be so much part. So He draws us to a place that if we were to give our life to Christ, if we'd been wayward, we'd come home and just say, God, Calvary still stands. I, I want you to forgive me for my waywardness. Well, then His love has never changed. But love and truth together. And all week, to be honest, I've been thinking about this whole thought of we're in a world that doesn't want to be judged. And the Bible says we shouldn't judge, but wants to be loved. Our human form, God created every human being, no matter what persuasion of belief, even if they say they have no belief. We're designed to be wrapped in the love of a father that just loves us completely. And, and, I, and I just had this kind of bullseye in my mind all week, sort of center and then, there's an outer layer and then an outer layer. And it's kind of like, if we're going to reach the world, I think we are to connect through unconditional love. No matter what the bias of whoever we work with or whoever we live, we are not there to be people that are first up on truth. We're there to be first up on love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He didn't say, here's all the stuff. No, he showed us in the Old Testament law, we couldn't get it right, but he sent his son and says, I love you, I love you, I love you. And we're, we're committed as a church to make sure because truth must be wrapped in grace, which must be wrapped in love. So we connect through unconditional love and then we demonstrate an undeniable grace. When you start judging, you're not realizing the grace that's come your way. Yeah, but I wouldn't do that. It doesn't matter. Sin is sin. We're all sinners fallen short of the glory of God. And when we start loving people unconditionally and also then we, in our everyday activity, never point a finger of judgment. How come you don't judge? Well, I just realized there's a God that met me. There's a God that forgave me. And until we reach with love and then to grace, I don't think we get the opportunity to literally share an uncompromised truth. Okay, I want to go on record again here at Life. We believe in the Bible. We do not believe that we have a right to take some things out and put some things in. The Bible is God's truth. God is truth. He's the I am God. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The moment we compromise truth, we lose who God is. You can have a belief, but you lose Him. And I would say, so... We come to the world in love, yes, but love, grace, and truth walk hand in hand. We're not here to judge. Jesus said of himself and his humanity, he says, I don't judge anyone, but my word does. So truth is the core, wrapped in grace, love. They are all God. 
And when we begin to get that, we find that there's hope for all of humanity. And we can reach a world in need. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Life. If you have questions or want to contact someone about this message, visit lifenz.org.